This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, journalist and editor Madison Connaughton joined me to discuss the latest in federal politics. Then, Professor Mary Louise McLaws joined me. Mary Louise is an epidemiologist at UNSW and a member of the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. I sat down with Mary Louise to discuss how Australia can achieve herd immunity through vaccination, when we should be looking at the vaccination of children, the epidemiological situation in New South Wales with their latest Delta variant outbreak causing a two-week lockdown, and the reality of long COVID, another concerning consequence of developing COVID-19. Mary Louise and I also discuss Australia's four-phased plan to open up the country and the government's rhetoric about in future treating COVID-19 like the flu. Then, finally, Dr Kevin Rowe, Senior Curator of Mammals at Museums Victoria, joined me to discuss the exciting taxonomic resurrection of a previously thought to be extinct species – Gould's Mouse, which is currently surviving on Burney Island in Western Australia. We also discuss the significance of native rodents to Australia, a significantly under threat group of mammals. Uh, I want to welcome Madison back onto the program. Madison is a journalist and editor and until very recently was the editor of the Saturday paper. And Madison has spoken with us on previous occasions talking about federal politics. And we are going to talk about federal politics because, uh, as I said at the top of the show, there are some really key areas here that are developing and they are going to affect our everyday lives. And these are decisions of National Cabinet, for example. Um, But we've also seen some really interesting developments uh, looking at some of the grant schemes that the coalition had put in place uh, before the 2019 election, which they won, including what has been termed in recent days the car park slush fund. And we've also seen overnight um, a really interesting interview with former Liberal MP for Chisholm, Julia Banks. She was on ABC 730 speaking with Laura Tingle. And, uh, and really speaking very honestly and openly about her experiences in the coalition party room, particularly as a Liberal. And uh, we've also seen some exciting developments for the National Archives, which is something that this program has been following. So without further ado, I welcome <laughs> Madison to the show. Hey there, Madison. Hey, Amy. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It is. We are in kind of the throes of winter, so um, things can get a little blurry as to what's been happening. And it could get even blurrier given that uh, really last week we saw multiple states in various forms of lockdown. And it was a little bit surreal, I think, for some people who were so used to seeing, you know, one state lockdown and maybe that was Victoria or New South Wales. But uh, at one stage, we did see parts of the Northern Territory, uh, Alice Springs and Darwin lockdown. We saw Western Australia briefly lockdown. We saw parts of Queensland lockdown, obviously New South Wales in a two-week lockdown. Victoria recently having come out of a lockdown. So, I mean, this is something that was 
kind of almost unprecedented, really, um, because of this Delta variant that has decided to uh, cause a lot of trouble here in Australia and around the world. So, first of all, with all that kind of chaos in mind and um, and the, the kind of to and fro between the federal government and the states on the vaccine rollout and hotel quarantine, which is one of the causes of all these outbreaks, uh, what has been the, the scene and the tension and the drama and the, the situation in National Cabinet in the past week, given that we've had two National Cabinet meetings um, of great significance, one on Monday uh, and another one on Friday. I'd love to get a sense of, um, first of all, you know, what the political uh, situation is like in National Cabinet. Mm, well, I think that the reporting that we're seeing coming out of National Cabinet paints a fairly chaotic picture. You've got the, the Monday meeting last week um, where Scott Morrison emerged and did his, his sort of um, his presser and kind of announced without warning um, this um, extension of AstraZeneca to under 40s or a sort of formalisation of what had sort of already been informally happening um, with under 40s being able to go and get the AstraZeneca vaccine from their GP if they have sort of informed consent. Um, and the, you know, the state and territory leaders kind of um, expressed that this hadn't really been discussed in, in National Cabinet. What had been discussed is kind of an, an indemnity scheme for GPs. Um, but it, it seems like uh, the, the Prime Minister kind of misspoke or freelanced or kind of was desperate to sort of push forward the, the vaccine rollout, which has been so slow. Um, and then at the end of the week, we see this um, National Cabinet meeting that sort of formalises um, yet another reset to um, the sort of national vaccine rollout, which will see a four-phase um, program to bring Australia back to COVID normal. I feel like we've had a lot of these resets over the past few months, um, but this one will sort of see um, Australia's international arrivals cap halved until at least the end of the year, although the Prime Minister wasn't putting any dates on when these four phases will happen. Um, instead, they'll be sort of based on modelling from the Doherty Institute about when it's safe to kind of reopen Australia, uh, the country in stages. Um, but I think that that the most significant thing that's come out because it does seem like a lot of what's been said is just kind of a formalization of what is sort of already happening anyway. Um, but that that slashing of the international arrivals cap does seem fairly significant given, you know, the the quarantine issues that Australia is having, but also given the fact that there are still thousands of Australians trapped overseas who will probably not be able to get back now until the end of the year. Yeah, it certainly has put a spanner in the works for a number of people who are already struggling to actually get home and have been struggling for a very long time. Uh, let's just take a step back to where we started there, um, where we were talking about the Monday meeting, because I'd like to just close out on this issue of the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, we did see some reporting about the AHPPC um, suggesting that perhaps they had taken to National Cabinet that we should, um, you know, not focus all of our attention on AstraZeneca, that maybe it was time, um, you know, to really confine it to limited use. 
Uh, and then there was um, more kind of reporting uh, of sources to the Saturday paper saying that, quote, um, the government, as in they were worried about the optics of doctors having to throw out lots of AZ stock the feds had bought because apparently there were a lot of batches of AstraZeneca due to expire within weeks and months. And obviously, given that if it was confined to uh, people aged 60 and over, um, then perhaps they'd end up having to throw out good vaccines. Um, so we had seen a lot of behind-the-scenes reporting and backgrounding about what had happened in those meetings, what the states were expecting. Um, and then we did see Scott Morrison come out and announce something fairly clearly to him, at least, um, <laughs> to say that, well, actually, you know, AstraZeneca is available to people under um, 60 and under 40 if they choose to. Uh, we then saw for the next few days a lot of the experts that the government said that they would actually be listening to disagree and actually contradict what the Prime Minister said. And I think that is what I wanted to draw out, which is because um, ATAGI, which is the key vaccine decision-making body that is independent from government and is headed up and co-chaired by Victoria's Alan Cheng, uh, he, he said and his co-chair said um, that it should still, AstraZeneca should, should still only be used in pressing circumstances uh, for those groups of people, younger people, and only with informed consent and after a lot of consideration with their general practitioner or other kind of specialist. So we got some very conflicting responses. And I thought it was quite interesting that for the entire pandemic, we've said, we'll listen to the experts. Uh, we'll always listen to the health advice. We'll listen to the doctors and the scientists, you know, the TGA, ATAGI, they're all independent from government. And then we did have this inflection point where the federal government actually decided to contradict really um, the, the scientific advice and the AMA then decided to back in ATAGI. Um, so then we've got doctors, chief health officers, including the Queensland chief health officer, saying actually the Prime Minister's wrong. I mean, do you think that this is an interesting point politically because uh, the, the pandemic had been seen, at least in these scientific decisions, as apolitical? I mean, I don't think that the pandemic has ever been apolitical. I think that there's always been political considerations as part of the policy mix, although, you know, in the earlier months it was less so and it's ramped up over time. Um, but I think that politicians are inherently political in the way they think. Um, the I'm just saying I, I think in terms of the scientific decisions, though, where, as in like whether a vaccine should be approved, you know, when, what kind of setting it should be approved for, what age group it should be approved, these are all decisions that have been made by scientists and doctors. Sure. Yes. I mean, the Atagi advice is was made, I guess, apolitically. Um, but yeah, I'm not entirely sure what the question is. Sorry. Oh, well, I'm just saying, you know, of, of course, the pandemic has been political and it absolutely is. But I'm just saying I found it interesting that the federal government has decided to step in in an area that has been apolitical, as in who gets what vaccine. Um, based on age range and risk factors. And that seemed quite interesting because we'd seen Greg Hunt, Scott Morrison, the premiers all come out and say, we'll always listen to, to the health advice. 
Our lockdowns will be brought in when the chief health officers tell us to, you know, the vaccine um, is now too risky for uh, under 50s. So um, we've listened to the health advice and they'll only have Pfizer now. We've had that messaging throughout um, being telling us that, you know, the government will listen to the health advice. And then we've had this moment where they've decided, well, actually, we won't. I mean, I don't think that this is the only moment that that's happened. Um, I think that, the, you know, that phrase, we rely on the health advice, has been a bit misused throughout the pandemic. Um, when it's been politically useful, it's been used. Um, and when it hasn't, it's been sort of ignored. But I, I think that the idea that the moment where we've got like Jeanette Young, who's the chief health officer in Queensland, coming out and saying, you know, I don't want an 18-year-old in Queensland dying from from blood clots um, when it's, you know, if they got COVID, it would be much less likely they'd die. And then you have the Prime Minister saying, you know, you just have a chat with your GP and if it's informed consent. I think that shows, like, the the level of, like, risk averseness from the federal government and from the state and from the states. And it's so widely different that I think the Australian public looks at that and is like, well, that has to be political from the federal government, that they're taking such like a, a lack of sort of a risk assessment when it comes to the AstraZeneca vaccine, given how much investment the Australian government's made in, in the AstraZeneca vaccine. You know, it's the only one where producing domestically. Um, it's the largest sort of um, supply of vaccine we have. Um, and the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines aren't going to be arriving until later this year. I think the optics of, of sort of throwing out vaccines, you know, in reality, we would probably be giving them to the Pacific, which is what the, Australia, the Australian government has been saying that they would do. But it does seem like the, the federal government's in this position where it's really put all of its eggs into the AstraZeneca basket, at least for the next couple of months. And it doesn't want to be seen to sort of admit that that wasn't a good strategy in terms of, you know, reducing the risk if, the, if one of the vaccines didn't work as much as, you know, they would have hoped. Mm, yeah, it certainly is something that's been common is the coalition government managing what things look like rather than what the actual situation is. And it's been um, a kind of common criticism of multiple governments, not just the coalition, of course. Um, but also at, at this point, we've seen Daniel Andrews, Victoria's Premier, come back from his sick leave. And he even has decided to change up the messaging a bit and he came out on ABC's mornings program um, with Virginia Trioli, did a really long interview and was talking about, you know, we should be reducing the number of travellers. Um, we don't want to go back into lockdowns. You know, the main reason why we have lockdowns be is because of hotel quarantine breaches and because our population is not fully vaccinated. Um, and that interesting messaging was being reinforced throughout the week. So it was then not as surprising to see that four-phase plan that you mentioned there being announced by the Prime Minister on Friday. And um, interesting to see some of the conversation around this, which has been was it um, pushed by Victoria or the states and the uh, prime minister went along with it because it was kind of very loose and, um, vis you know, top level. It didn't have any timelines. It didn't have any kind of really robust criteria yet. It seemed a, a bit half formed and there are, are still key things to be brought in, like modelling from the Doherty Institute. What are your thoughts on the reason why we've, you know, been given this strategy kind of seemingly out of the blue? 
Mm, I mean, I think it's probably twofold. It does seem like it's a concession to the states after a particularly fractious week of, um, as we just discussed, sort of back and forth about um, Scott Morrison's um, AstraZeneca announcement. It, it does seem like it was all of the states, I guess, except New South Wales, have been sort of pushing for this reduction in the um, in the international arrivals cap. But I think the other part of it is just that being able to come out with a with a plan that seems to have four phases, you know, each with some dot points underneath them, gives the sense that this is being handled. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's a it's a reset with Lieutenant General John Fruin being brought in to sort of oversee it. It's got these four phases. There'll be a vaccine ramp up. It's the appearance of things being under control. Um, whereas I, I do think that it, it's not really anything different than what's already been happening. It's kind of just beyond that international arrivals cap being halved. I think it's kind of just, you know, a formalization or a grouping of what was already sort of expected to happen. Um, it'll be interesting though, to see kind of what those thresholds are for the Doherty Institute, I mean, you know, the WHO is saying 60 to 70 percent of the population vaccinated is kind of an idea of herd immunity. Gladys Berejiklian was mentioning, you know, 80 percent of the population. Um, I'd be curious to see some more data around and some numbers, I guess, around what those four phases will actually look like in terms of, of vaccination levels, because there was no detail in the um, original announcement. Yeah, and it reminds you, of course, of the fact that we did have vaccination targets. Uh, you, <laughs> we may remember at the start <laughs> of the year they were there, uh, and then because the goalposts kept on moving because we didn't meet these targets, they were ditched entirely, and now we have no targets. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's probably why the government would be reluctant to put any really key targets in here. Uh, at this point is because we still don't have a, a very robust supply of vaccines, definitely not of Pfizer. Uh, so it's something that the government wouldn't want to, I guess, fail on again mm. um, and have that ongoing criticism when there is a, a kind of measurable KPI put there for them to actually achieve. Mm. Uh, and obviously they've got the state's you know, pressuring them to say, well, we can deliver this many vaccines, um, but, you know, the supply is dwindling. And uh, Victoria, for example, the other day saying, you know, of course we could be doing much more than even 20,000 a day, but the supplies are lower. We've only got second doses at the moment for Pfizer. Um, you know, the first dose new bookings will be at the end of July, early August. So, you know, and, and the supply is actually going to be reducing over time at the moment until it picks up again towards the end of the year. So this is something that I guess um, the government is kind of stuck with, aren't they? I mean, what, what kind of movement can you make apart from put out four-phase plans and kind of change the guidance around whether people can take the existing vaccines or not? Mm, I think the supply issues are really limiting what Australia can do um, in terms of, you know, this idea of a ramp up. Um, there are clearly efficiencies that could be made, you know, more GPs are being brought in, more pharmacies are being brought in. Um, but, you know, the critical issue here is one of, you know, supply of the vaccine that people want to take, which is the Pfizer vaccine. Um, and that's kind of, you know, putting this cap on what Australia can do. Um, I do think that there's sort of waning patience, though, within the Australian public um, about feeling like there's a lack of 
progress. Like, you know, we've kind of talked about the cyclical, cyclical nature of the vaccine policy that sort of there's this ramp up and then it isn't met and then the government sort of retreats and then there's another ramp up and it kind of feels like we're in a bit of a cycle. And look, in fairness, the Delta variant is has kind of changed the risk calculus of all of this. Um, it spreads, you know, more um, virulently that, um, and um, there there is a heightened risk of transmission. Um, but it doesn't feel like there's been significant pro like progress since the vaccination process started. Um, we've sort of been ticking along and we've kind of hit 8% fully vaccinated, which is, you know, significantly below the global average. And I think that that frustration is starting to get to a tipping point, particularly just because people, you know, are on Instagram and they see their friends overseas going out and enjoying summer and all of these sort of things. And it feels like Australia is kind of in this bubble that is significantly behind the rest of the world. Um, you know, we're not worlds away, as, you know, sort of Jane Holton said, we're probably in the middle of the pack, although we are at the back of the OECD. But I think as that vaccination gulf kind of widens, the political pressure will significantly ramp up. And putting that into context is the fact that there will be a federal election at some point in the kind of near to middle future. And that's something that clearly any government would have on their mind and to be constantly reevaluating when the best time is for an election based on polling, based on public sentiment, how um, vaccine rollout is going. So there are so many factors. Um, and, and it brings me to one of the issues we've seen in recent times come up and um, really... <laughs> I guess not surprise some people, which has been a review from the Australian National Audit Office, uh, which looked at one of the kind of funding grants commitments that the coalition government made in the lead up to the 2019 federal election, which is that they committed over $600 million to building 47 commuter car parks at suburban railway stations across four state capitals. And it was noted that these car parks were actually all in vulnerable seats, so seats that uh, either Labor or the Liberals could have won. And um, according to the audit office, there were no merit or eligibility criteria, no published guidelines, no cost-benefit analyses, no significant consultations um, before the sites were chosen other than, and this is what Simon Birmingham decided to, uh, to put his focus on the other day on Insiders, was to suggest that, oh, well, it's up to each uh, MP, each local MP, to advocate on behalf of their electorate. And uh, we listen to those MPs and candidates and, um, and you know, accordingly uh, spent money in infrastructure. What are you complaining about? So uh, it's very interesting to see that this is not the first time, of course, that the uh, National Audit Office has actually looked at a program like this because we have the termed um, termed program sports rorts or the sports grants program that Bridget McKenzie had overseen um, be such a focus in the last year and um, obviously she lost her job over that or partially lost her job over that also over another issue um, and is now back and now we see that similarly another 
kind of so-called slush fund uh, come up where there doesn't appear to be any sense of rigour, any sense of process. Um, and it does call into question the kind of motivations of the coalition government in an election period, pre-election, um, and why they were, you know, engaging in a program like this. So can you share with us what significance a kind of report by the Australian National Audit Office would have and what this really means for us when we think about, you know, the metrics of a government and are they performing in a way that is accountable to taxpayers? Mm. Well, I guess, I mean, the role of the Auditor General is to try and, you know, establish whether, you know, taxpayer money is being spent efficiently. And I think Simon Birmingham can come out and say, you know, we spent this money on infrastructure. Um, you should be happy about that. But, you know, the reality is that none of the projects were selected by the infrastructure department. So that's a huge inefficiency. Why do you have this giant department if you're not going to use it to try and select the most, you know, efficient and useful um you know, projects that could be greenlit. Um, I think it's fairly significant that, you know, the the majority of these um, car parks were promised in Victoria, um, even though the, you know, congestion issues are worse in New South Wales. And, and that, you know, key to that was that the, the sort of um, the fight in Victoria for some of these blue ribbon seats was, you know, very alive in the coalition's mind, you know, in 2016, like it was a real battleground. Um, and so I think the, I, I mean, if you've ever, if you've ever lived in suburban Victoria, the issue of getting, getting a car park at the station on your way to work is like the number one thing in people's minds. Um, so I think that this was like a very sort of key election decision um, to try and target some of these seats and keep them safe. I mean, you know, Michael Sucker got five car parks, Josh Frydenberg in Kuyong, there were four. Um, and then in Goldstein, which is t uh, Tim Wilson's seat down in um, sort of Bayside in Victoria, um, there were six car parks promised. Um, and, you know, it, uh, Karen Middleton actually reported on this in January 2020, um, just after the election. And, you know, back then it was only $500 million that was had been spent. But the... Um, you know, the vast majority of these seats were like spruiked by these by these um, federal members on their Facebook pages. There were photos taken at the sites. They were really made into moments of the campaign. Um, and you know, the reality is that some of them can't even be built. I think the um, the Ringwood one was one that she um, pointed out that there was no land that was available to build the car park. Um, you know, the Guardian's reporting today that one of those car parks cost $115,000 per car park, like per mm -hmm. parking space. space. Um, I think like, you know, the and, sorry, and generals didn't were, have didn't have technology included. That's just literally concrete and lines. Yeah, yeah concrete and lines, very, very um, expensive, uh, yeah, expensive rectangles. Um, but, you know, it, coming back to the Auditor General, the idea is efficiency, you know, $115,000 a car park. I, I don't think that many people are going to believe that that couldn't have been better money better spent. Um, but, I mean, the Auditor General, I think, is such an interesting thorn in the side of the federal government. And, you know, you mentioned the sports, you know, so-called sports rot scandal. But then there was also the Leppington land deal in New South Wales, where the land for the second Sydney airport was bought sort of 10 times the price that it should have been. 
Um, the Auditor General was also the one who picked up the Great Barrier Reef Fund back during the Turnbull government, where you know $443 million was given to a tiny charity um, that you know hadn't hadn't sort of you know made any sort of uh, national impact in terms of the Great Barrier Reef. And I think that the office being such a thorn in the side of government is so interesting because really it's kind of one of the only key accountability like, you know, mechanisms there is for the federal government because we don't have like a federal ICAC or anything like that, even though one has been promised. And I think it's so interesting to see how the Auditor General has kind of, you know, become this accountability um, mechanism, even though, you know, it's it's a very small office that hasn't hasn't got a huge budget to, to sort of try and keep track of, of all of this spending and where things are going. Mm, and I do recall that uh, it, it looked that they would lose funding uh, recently, but then after a lot of pushback, they received the adequate or somewhat adequate funding they required to continue to do their work. So even um, obviously in recent times, we've seen the coalition, you know, try and um, reduce the effectiveness of these kind of accountability and transpa transparency uh, measures and functions within government that clearly are desperately needed in, ab in the absence of a federal ICAC. And um, it is, you know, interesting to note that we are or were supposed to get one of those um, integrity bodies, supposedly, and that's another thing that is really on the back burner and hasn't uh, progressed. Mm, no, I mean, the, the last I heard of it was maybe the end of last year. There hasn't really been any discussion of it this year. I think it was kind of one of those things that fell to the wayside during COVID. And then obviously it was um, championed by Christian Porter during his time as attorney general. Um, and then given the allegations that were made against him, um, he's moved out of that portfolio. Um, and then Michaelia Cash as attorney general hasn't really picked up the, um, the federal ICAC um, question. Although I feel like calling it a federal ICAC is a bit generous given yeah. that the model put forward by government is um, significantly sort of um, would be not as um, wouldn't have the powers of, of the ICAC in New South Wales. No, not even close. Um, it is interesting to note that Michaelia Cash and the auditor, sorry, the Attorney General's department also has key oversight of a body that has been in the news recently, and that is the National Archives of Australia. And it's something that certainly um, I was really pushing on and Michelle Arrow was pushing on and many very prominent historians and public figures in Australia who even got together and wrote a big public letter and, you know, informed Prince Charles about um, the, the threat to the archives and these documents and really important treasures that were going to disintegrate basically to the point of not being usable anymore um, and the fact that the government did not provide that funding that was needed and recommended by the Tune Review, uh, that funding being $67.7 million to actually preserve those at-risk items that were going to be lost forever. Um, and we did finally see... I guess uh, one really good news story in the sense that uh, the federal government decided to do uh, what the public had asked to follow a review recommendation and to kind of cave in, I guess, to the public pressure because it didn't look like, uh, based on Senator Amanda Stoker's comments, that they were actually going to cave in uh, for quite a while. Mm, 
yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very glad that Uncommon Sense picked up the, um, the fight for the National Archives because it is such an incredible resource, I think, for historians. But then, you know, you even saw, you know, the Palace Papers, even though there was a lar- um, large and expensive legal fight over that, I think, you know, the... the um, the, the palace papers relating to Gough Whitlam's dismissal and, and there are so many documents and, and artefacts in the National Archives that kind of, you know, tell the story of Australia since Federation but before so as well. Um, and $67 million is not a significant amount of money in terms of the federal government's budget. Like it, it did feel like it was sort of petty for the federal government not to kind of just step up and implement this recommendation. Um, it didn't really make a lot of sense. I guess part of this government's um, public persona has been kind of, you know, this respect for history, you know, this kind of we have to um, respect Australia's history um, uh, and, and and tell that story. And I guess the amount of money that has been poured into the Australian War Memorial is kind of a reflection of that um, as well. And I think the contrast between the, the funding for the Australian War Memorial and, and the National Archives just sort of it's really stark that there was this, you know, kind of endless funding for the um, War Memorial but not $67 million to pre- preserve some of kind of the most important documents um, in the sort of federal history of Australia. It just felt like there was a cognitive dissonance there that didn't make a lot of sense, I guess, you know, just in terms of um, the money that was being asked for but also just the the public persona that the Morrison government has tried to put out there Um and I, I mean, maybe it was kind of a sort of anti-academic stance or something like that. I, I feel like there's maybe a bit of a sense that the, the archives are just something that historians kind of spend time in, but they're used by journalists. They're useful for all sorts of academia, academia research. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of really interesting work that goes on there even today. So I'm, I'm glad to see the, the funding come through, but it, it was a, you know, the Tune report was sitting on the government's desk for over a year before it was even made public. This clearly wasn't a priority in any sense of the word until there was that public campaign. Mm, exactly. And it does also, you know, make you heartened at least to see that there are good outcomes when public pressure is put on and, you know, all of the media gets behind it and quite literally every aspect of the media did. It was, you know, the Australian newspaper, the um, formerly Fairfax newspapers, the mm. independent press, community radio, like everyone really did um, actually get behind this and properly discuss it to the point where I'm pretty sure many people will know much more about the archives than they ever did. <laughs> yeah. So there yeah, are and some guess, positives. Yeah. And I guess that's why I'm saying that it didn't really make a lot of sense, like, you know, politically or just in terms of, you know, spending, but also politically. Like when you have media across the political spectrum criticising this decision but the government kind of holding the line until it eventually caved in, I just don't really understand what the political impetus for to sort of, you know, trying to fight this fairly modest ask for funding by the National Archives. Mm. And one other issue, Madison, um, that is something that has come up so many times during 2021 and definitely before that as well, but it it really has made headlines, is really the culture within Parliament House, which probably isn't a surprise to people who follow politics closely and, you know, hear the stories around Parliament House. Um, 
but it is really not just disappointing, but very concerning to hear that it's really, um, in many cases, unsafe for women to be. And we've heard Julia Banks just overnight give an interview with Laura Tingle on ABC 730 program about her new memoir, which is detailing a number of incidents that she claims have happened to herself that she has been, you know, part of and subjected to. Uh, And she really has detailed quite a lot of the back and forth that goes on in politics and the um, quote-unquote backstabbing that can happen and the the lying and the kind of manipulations that happen in politics and the... um, the kind of managing of appearances which happened just after that coup, coup that happened that saw Malcolm Turnbull lose the prime ministership and to see Scott Morrison installed there. And Julia Banks um, obviously was part of that, you know, as all Liberal MPs were in the sense that they had to take a side. Um, and now I guess Julia has lifted the curtain and kind of given us an insight into what had been happening behind the scenes and how she felt that she had been managed by uh, the leadership of the Liberal Party and um, the staff surrounding the Prime Minister. Mm. I mean, Julia Banks has spoken, I guess, in increasing detail since she moved to the crossbench after um, Malcolm Turnbull was sort of rolled as, as Prime Minister. But I think the allegations that are kind of being put forward in her book are probably the most shocking thing she said on the record. I mean, the allegation that a a federal MP, you know, placed his hand on her leg and and, and sort of moved it up and inappropriately touched her in a room full of um, MPs is Mm. is really troubling. Um, A cabinet minister, she says. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, that kind of plausible deniability that she talks about that that he would say, you know, it happened in a room full of people. How could that ever happen? That sort of, that sort of fearlessness in which um, someone would act. Um, I think that that's really striking, and and troubling. Um, I, but she also kind of spoke more generally about like this kind of Mad Men esque culture in in politics, which is it seems like a lot of women who've worked in the corporate world and then came into politics had the same sort of whiplash that she's talking about, where she's like, oh, I've you know I've worked in male dominated spaces, but you know Parliament felt like I was back in the 1980s. Um, it was a very misogynistic culture. It was very you know rowy, very um, kind of where bullying was seen as kind of just, you know, if you couldn't, if you didn't want to put up with bullying, then you couldn't hack it. Um, And I I thought it was really interesting that she said that, you know, she would send a copy um, of her memoir to the Kate Jenkins inquiry that's currently going on about workplace culture in Canberra, um, but that she wouldn't do an interview. Um, And, you know, Julia Banks was very respectful of, of Kate Jenkins personally and professionally, but she just said that she doesn't trust the federal government um, to maintain the privacy, you know, her privacy if she was to speak to that inquiry. And that definitely comes from the fact that, you know, she was, um, when she was considering kind of moving to the crossbench or, you know, um, maintaining supply um, to the government from the crossbench, you know, ministers were constantly backgrounding against her. There was this real sort of campaign to make it seem like she didn't have what it took to, to make it in federal parliament. Um, you know, banks 
Melissa alleges that, you know, she was having a meeting with Josh Frydenberg um, about maintaining supply for the government when she'd moved to the crossbench and he was live texting to Sky News about what she was saying and it was coming up on the TV in her office. Like, I think that level of kind of backgrounding, you know, really does undermine trust um, in whether these internal investigations can work. But I think it also shows how much of a woman, women issue the government does have. I mean, Julia Banks was very um, kind of effective and um, well-respected corporate lawyer before she came into parliament. She came in in the 2016 election and was the only Liberal minister who was able to take a, a seat off of Labor. She won Anna Burke's seat um, in Chisholm. And she was a real asset for the government in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, she's left. A lot of other people have left. Julie Bishop is speaking increasingly about the toxicity of the, you know, of the parliamentary environment. I think it's an issue that isn't going to go away for the government. And it may not be this number one news story in the country anymore, as it was during, you know, sort of when Brittany Higgins's allegations came out. But I do think it's going to be a real recruitment issue for the Liberal Party about trying to bring women into, into parliament and into politics, um, which will definitely hurt them at this federal election and federal elections in the future. Mm, especially with the Bowman pre-selection where there were five candidates running, one of them was a male and the male just won. So... Um, and it was interesting that he was backed by Amanda Stoker and having been identified as, um, you know, a, a strong Christian. So, you know, we're seeing when women are putting their hat in the ring, um, and this is not the only example, that they're not really uh, generally rewarded for that. And when they do get pre-selection and are even potentially uh, safely sitting in their seats, that they do have challenges to them and often lose those seats. So um, it is concerning for any woman wanting to participate in politics that there is this level of insecurity um, in terms of their their pre-selected spots and um, their position within the party. So it'll be something to continue to watch and obviously Julia's memoir will be particularly interesting to read. Um, Madison, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today and to delve into these issues a bit more deeply with us and, uh, yeah, hope you have a fantastic week. Thanks so much, Amy. It was great to talk with you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I'm really pleased to welcome back onto the program Professor Mary Louise McLaws, who is an epidemiologist based at the University of New South Wales, and she's also an advisory member of the World Health Organization's Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. And listeners to this program will know Mary Louise well, and she has guided us well through our own lockdowns here in Victoria and really um, our last conversation got such a brilliant response because uh, Mary Louise really explained the situation, I know, for a lot of Victorians who are getting 
quite overwhelmed and confused and we had an outbreak here in recent times of the Kappa and Delta variants and obviously our own lockdown and uh, Mary Louise I know gave uh, a lot of clarity to the issue that um, that many Victorians felt a little bit overwhelmed by so I'm really glad to be welcoming Mary Louise back onto the program to talk about all of these issues relating to COVID-19 in Australia. Hi there Mary Louise and thank you so much for coming back onto the program. Good morning and thank you for having me back again. It's always a real pleasure and it clearly does make a huge difference for those listening to be able to access and understand um, the situation through your expertise. So uh, first of all, given that you are based in New South Wales, I thought I'd start with the most obvious uh, issue and topic, which is the situation in New South Wales. Um, One thing that has been really clear and even clear in our discussions is that if one state is having a really difficult time and an outbreak, it does affect every other state. And we certainly saw that uh, last week when we were in a situation with multiple states and areas within states in various forms of lockdown um, because we saw cases from different states uh, moving around and, and sparking off new outbreaks. So this is something which obviously we should all be concerned by and and care about is when a state is struggling. And obviously New South Wales does appear to be struggling. Um, Could you just share with us briefly, for for any Victorians who maybe haven't followed the New South Wales situation as closely as they do their own, uh, what's been happening and and the general trajectory of the outbreak over in New South Wales? Um, Certainly, obviously, from your perspective, where I know you had been calling for a circuit breaker, three-day lockdown very early on in the piece. Oh, look, there's... uh Lockdowns are not nice and should not be used um, lightly, but uh, they need to often be used right at the beginning rather than uh, too late. Because once um, uh, particularly Delta gets into the community, it is very hard uh, to to stop it because Delta seems to be um, uh, transmitted in such a way that you don't even know who's potentially given it to you. And that's why you need to respond really rapidly. So at the moment in New South Wales, um, the lockdown happened quite late, uh, uh, three days of uh, double digits. Uh, and that, of course, fulfills the um, federal uh, definition of a hotspot. But that definition of 10 um, cases per day uh, consecutively for three days needs to change um, because um, this is Delta and it's not behaving uh, like the previous uh, wild strains had been. So we're in this situation now and what we're observing is uh, case numbers are going up, so it's trending, uh, even using an average 14-day rolling average or seven-day rolling average. The numbers are still going up. Now, you'd expect that. That's not so awful. Well, it is for the individual having to suffer this ghastly disease. But the part that you really need to be concerned about are the numbers of cases who were not identified um, early by contact tracers. Uh, They weren't found on CCTV, for example, if you're not in a shopping mall. And they've only been identified with um, community testing um, or eventually uh, coming up as a, you know, secondary 
contact of, a, of somebody that's already been diagnosed. And these people have had time to spread it in the community inadvertently. And they're those that have been uh, termed um, not in isolation. That's the group you need to worry about. And in Victoria, when you had your lockdown and you uh, then lifted it, you didn't lift it in the South Bank um, complex correctly because um, you knew that uh, those households would acquire COVID and uh, you were quite um, confident that there were no other cases, <clears throat> excuse me, that weren't in isolation. So you still, though, did things slowly by lifting the restrictions slowly to ensure that that was absolutely correct. And you had a couple of days of zeros, I think you call them donuts, uh, and then sadly New South Wales gifted the Delta to you. Yes. But in, yeah, but in, but in New South Wales, uh, we've got what I would coin um, a lockdown light where you can travel um, to maybe your holiday home um, and that's problematic because if you've travelled outside initially the uh, the hotspot area of the eastern suburbs, um, you could have taken it to the northern beaches or um, to the ski fields or elsewhere. Um, and uh, we certainly don't have a restriction for how far we can leave our house so that, you know, we could go shopping because some of the um, retailers are asked to think about whether they're essential rather than identifying who's essential because, of course, the authorities find that a difficult decision. But if they find it difficult, then the retailers will find it difficult and err on the let's keep um, the shop open and keep people employed. So uh, when you do uh, make it a much more relaxed, it's open for interpretation. So that's where you have problems. And I'll give you an example. So I went up the um, up the shops uh, in my in my local district with a mask on because I didn't think walking to the shops constituted exercise. And of course, people are walking past me on the footpath without uh, a mask because they've decided they're going for some exercise, but they've interpreted it in a very um, generous fashion, where if you're going past people, you need to actually show them respect and wear a mask. And then there are joggers and they aren't, they don't wear a mask and they shouldn't. But what they're not being instructed to do is to jog away from people, not past people, because they're really pushing those particles out enormously. Um, they need to be told, I know you really like a particular route and you know how fast you can go on that route and you, you know how long it will take you. This is different. You have to go right away into the uh, a suburban area where uh, there aren't um, shops and there's very little people. And if you see somebody, really jog away from them. So then, of course, people then get to uh, the village and, of course, people don't have their mask on. Uh, so it is concerning and it's not their fault because they're not being told wear a mask when you go outside, except for if you're cycling or, or running. Um, if you're skateboarding, you may not need 
uh, to wear a mask, um, but make the decision yourself. Um, but but the rest of you walking is, um, you know, walking to the coffee shop or walking to get a loaf of bread is is not, I think, in the spirit of um, exercise uh, and masking. Mm. Well, it is concerning, and and you've pointed there to some really clear contradictions. And and I have noticed that in the press conferences that there've been these discussions where you hear, well, New South Wales is having gorgeous weather. It's really nice outside. So you should get out as much as you can. uh, But also you should make sure you maintain distance and, uh, you know, not exercise with too many other people and to to keep it minimal. So, you know, you're getting one suggestion, which was go outside because the risk is not as bad outside as to indoors. Um, But then you're also being told, but you should still limit your movements and stay at home as much as possible. Um, And it seems that these kind of guidelines that have been given and they have been used, these terms like guidelines and use your common sense and, you know, it's up to you as to what you deem to be essential. And as you said, Mary Louise, that businesses have been told to kind of use their common sense about what is essential. And, you know, I've seen anecdotes around a jewellery store thinking that, well, they're essential, so they'll stay open in case people desperately need jewellery during lockdown. These are things which I guess Victoria has never really had to contend with uh, in the sense that we had these very clear guidelines and even guidelines around um, at the very beginning of these lockdowns whether we can go visit loved ones in hospital Um, and the answer is no, we couldn't Um, Mm. and that has happened to me certainly a number of times where I haven't been able to go in to hospitals to visit a a close um, relative during these lockdowns and we knew straight away what the restrictions were and it seemed quite preemptive. And I wonder whether when we see these changes and these tightening of guidelines, um, certainly in recent times around hospitals, for example, it seems quite reactionary or, or a, a response to a situation rather than a preemptive um, measure taken to prevent something from happening. Yes, yeah, so look, if it's very difficult for um, the authorities to make a very um, um, obvious decisions, it's going to be even more difficult for the public. Uh, now, the public have been, because of journalists and, and journalists like you, have become really sophisticated with understanding uh, epidemiology and virology. They're quite remarkable. But um, infection control uh, basically requires us to think about the other all the time. And that is very difficult when you've got pressing needs. Um, and, and quite rightly, you know, your needs uh, need to be met. But in public health and outbreak management, uh, you've got to think of the greater good. And so you have to tell the public very clearly where the boundaries are because it makes it easier. And then people don't get cranky um, seeing some that they feel are flouting um, the um, the rules. Uh, and uh, I do think that there's a real difference between uh, Victoria, for example, uh, where um, you know you, you had that second wave and then the learning curve was very steep and you put in place a, a lot of learnt um, lessons. Um, but we in New South Wales have a less prescriptive approach and from an outbreak management perspective, perspective, that less um, prescriptive approach can be very, very difficult um, in in a highly infectious um, outbreak such as now we're dealing with with Delta. 
Uh, so it, it, there needs to be very clear and sadly very prescriptive ones like when you go outside, you need to wear a mask unless you're running or cycling. And even then, don't run or cycle in crowded areas because you're pushing out potentially an enormous plume of infected particles. And um, we had a meeting at WHO with particle physicists because, you know, they're trying to understand what might um, encourage airborne spread because it's so important. Uh, and, um, you know, we're seeing in Australia a, a very interesting pattern that I don't think uh, other countries, particularly the UK, where they went from 30% of community samples in April to 90% in May, June, being Delta. And it was so fast that they probably didn't have the observation that New South Wales has provided, I think, the world with, is um, that CCTV experience where the driver walked uh, in a shopping mall and was seen to walk past people who became infected and weren't considered to be at all close contacts because that old um, definition of what a contact had to be, you know, 15 minutes, um, you know, within a metre and a half, um, et cetera, or a consistent um, period of time over an hour in an indoor enclosed area, uh, that doesn't um, seem to apply to Delta anymore because of um, the excellent work done by contact tracers looking at the CCTV and then calling the transmission fleeting, which basically I think means that you're walking into a plume of infected particles indoors where they're tiny particles called droplet nuclei that can hang in the air for longer. So with that knowledge, that scientific knowledge that they've gained by just watching the CCTV um, footage, then they need to say because of what we think we're observing with transmission, this is why you need to wear your mask outdoors. Um, because otherwise, um, if Delta um, outbreak at the moment becomes bigger, we're not going to be able to uh, squash it uh, with the way people are not wearing a mask outside. And, of course, the authorities not being able to get them to wear it um, because they're following supposedly the letter of the, of the rule, and that is I'm doing exercise, I'm walking. Um, yeah, I'm walking in a highly built-up area, but that's not, that's not the same as uh, what the intention meant to be. Mm. And it does also remind me that we saw New South Wales Health Minister Brad Hazard emphasise in one of the press conferences, uh, which is something I have not seen in recent times, and that is that we need to wear masks properly uh, over the nose and the mouth because they are both um, areas that can transmit infection and um, virus particles. And it's something that I've even noted in Victoria, as you see a number of people wearing a mask under their chin, under their nose, um, you know, not you know, adequately across the kind of key areas. And then it, I guess it seems to be, and I'd love your opinion and um, input, that that would make, 
you know, the the point of a mask almost mute because, um, you know, if you're not wearing it appropriately and across your nose and your mouth, it seems that it will do a far less effective job at actually being our safety net here in Victoria and actively preventing transmission over in New South Wales. So we know that um, when you're speaking um, or coughing or singing, and certainly speaking loudly on your phone, you're pushing out more particles. So the volume um, and the acceleration um, pushes out more particles. So, sure, their mouth is now covered, so they're not pushing out big amounts of particles through their nose, but they still can be. But the nose can breathe in the particles. So put the mask over your nose to protect yourself, please. Because this virus, Delta, has learnt, we think, and it's still hypothetical, that it's more stable on the ACE2 receptor sites in your nose, uh, you know, your upper airways, and in your eyes, potentially. And now that it's more stable, it can then hook in and enter and fuse with the, with the cell. So don't give it any chance to get in through your nose. Um, I, I appreciate that people are wearing it under their chin if they're going for a walk in an empty street and then they remember to put their mask over their nose and mouth as soon as they see somebody coming up in, in the distance. Um, but but um, just where, and I see it all the time on the bus, as the buses go past, um, people sitting there uh, with their mask under their nose, um, often because their, of course, their reading glasses or sunglasses are fogging up, and it is very annoying. Mm. But you'll find if you um, push the uh, the band on your nose closer to your skin, you'll have less of a problem with the um, the fogging up of the the glasses. But I, I appreciate it's not comfortable, but neither is getting COVID, and certainly not this one. It's been described to me as um, when you've got Delta is being hit by a bus. And that's when, and that's for people who haven't been admitted to hospital. So um, don't get COVID. Yes, exactly. And uh, I want to kind of round out this discussion on the New South Wales situation by talking about those cases you mentioned earlier, not just the overall case numbers, um, but also how many were actually not in isolation or were only partially in isolation for their infectious period. It seems that New South Wales breaks them down into three categories, whereas Victoria just has either was or wasn't in isolation. Mm. Um, so as an example, yesterday there were 35 cases, 24 were in isolation, so obviously had been identified as being a close contact. Four were um, partially, like were in isolation partially, so for part of their infection infectious period and then seven were not at all uh, in isolation for their infectious period. Obviously, that means there'll be more exposure sites. Um, there'll also be potentially more community transmission if you have seven to 11 people in the community infectious at the time, uh, potentially having exposure at the supermarket, outside, you know, at a 
non-essential shop that's been judged to be essential. These are the kind of concerns, I presume, that any uh, public health team would have. So I wonder, from your perspective, observing these figures at the more detailed level in terms of community transmission, exposure sites and those people who are still out and about whilst they're infectious, do you think uh, that the, the kind of terminology that the, the Premier is using, such as just mopping up and there are green shoots uh, sprouting, are actually kind of realistic or representative of the situation in an epidemiological sense? Well, before I get to the green shoots, um, I, let me uh, remind uh, your listeners that uh, we've seen anywhere between a third to a half of all daily cases not being in full isolation during the period that they could potentially being transmitted during that pre-symptomatic period. And that's a worrying proportion. And you need to get that proportion down to zero. You'll still get new cases that have been in isolation because they were found uh, before they became infectious um, and before they um, were diagnosed. Uh, you'll still get them, and they're safe to the community. Uh, but it's the proportion that have been potentially spreading it that needs to get to zero before you get any green shoots. So I don't see the green shoots yet. Yesterday, um, the seven that weren't in isolation, four in partial, that equates to 31%. So we're still getting just under a third, and that's still way too many. Now, if you have a look at just numbers, you get distracted by thinking it's small numbers. But remember, this variant is up to 90% more transmissible than we've previously ever seen. So that's quite dramatic, really. Uh, and we may be seeing, but not we don't have the, the full data yet, that you might be spreading it earlier on in your disease uh, than, than later on. And that's why it's so important to know how many people have been under uh, quarantine or isolation. And it's very difficult because you don't always shop and, and expose others to your, un, you know, unwittingly um, un, under CCTV um, or under Q, um, QR code uh, systems. So there still will be a proportion, and let's hope it's small, that uh, have never been in isolation by the time they get um, tested. Well, and this is something obviously of concern for those in New South Wales, in Greater Sydney, who are under lockdown or lockdown light, um, because the lockdown is supposed to end at the end of this week on Friday, I believe. And there is obviously conversation that this is not going to finish on Friday. Um, there's also obviously community concern about the fact that perhaps um, some restrictions will be lifted and that um, it'll be too early. So I wonder when we're making these judgments or trying to make these judgments about when it, when might be an appropriate time to start to ease up on restrictions, would what kind of metrics would we be looking at? Um, are those metrics the people who have not been in isolation and are there other considerations that the New South Wales government would be looking at um, in terms of making a decision in the next three days? So there are three basic metrics, but you can you can use many others. But one is the daily, um, well, the 
the, the daily rolling average and I've been plotting it and it's been going skyward. But then that's not granular enough. Then you look at, as we've just spoken about at length, the proportion who have not been in isolation. And that's really important. And that's way too high at the moment. That needs to get very close to zero or zero to be very safe. And then the other one is how far it has spread uh, geographically. And geographically, the number of um, uh, sites that have been labelled uh, close contact or go get tested sites is remarkable uh, in in number and in geographic spread. Now we have two um, construction sites that um, out in Auburn in the west um, that have been labelled um, sites of concern. Now. The upside to that is that most of the workers will be outside. But the downside is that when they do need to work, they need to work close together um, to probably, you know, assist each other or or they uh, carpool together or they have a drink after work together and they're, you know, tight, a social work um, group. And so I expect more cases to be found, but I'm hoping that there will be cases that will have been in isolation uh, during that pre-symptomatic period of infectivity. So they're basically the three groups, but we've also got more cases occurring in residential aged care facilities. Um, The elderly are very vulnerable. They don't always elicit a good response to a vaccine, and that's why you need their staff to be mandatorily vaccinated. Uh, And they haven't because there's been um, a failure of the phase 1A rollout. And so there's been some staff who have inadvertently worked across a couple of campuses, even though that was against the rules um, uh, previously. And then when outbreaks stopped, apparently, unbeknownst to the rest of us, that rule was lifted again so that they could work across campuses. Now, I understand they have to because they don't get paid a lot. Um, But um, this is a pandemic. We need to increase their pay and tell them to do only one campus because we're never going to know until we get herd immunity um, whether or not there's been a breach in quarantine. And it's, you know, the driver was part of that program. That was a breach. And there are constant breaches. There's been 28 and they've caused... Uh, all of the community cases to date uh, since the 20th of March 2020, and that's about 21,000 cases. So until Australia improves its quarantine system and, you know, you can you can butter this any way you like with, with choosing a different denominator, but the denominator should really be the outcome how many cases have we had in the community? Not how many people have been through quarantine. It's how many people should never have got the infection in the first place. And we are nowhere near best practice. So we're always going to get those. So um, sadly, until uh, we get good herd immunity, staff in residential aged care facilities Um, either need to be fully vaccinated um, and hopefully, or as they are getting fully vaccinated, only work across in one facility only rather than 
potentially spreading an infection across two. Mm. And Mary Louise, that's a really great point. And it certainly was concerning to see that even just one of those aged care residents who's turned positive wasn't vaccinated. So um, I'm hoping that they have a good outcome. Uh, obviously, here in Victoria, there were very bad outcomes for elderly people who were not vaccinated because obviously we didn't have a vaccine at that point in our own uh, massive second wave. Um, one thing that you mentioned there is herd immunity, and it's something that has been a topic for a long time uh, when we didn't have a vaccine and people were talking about this idea of a natural herd immunity, which could happen through getting COVID-19. Obviously, that's not a realistic situation and a very bad one, in fact, showing uh, clearly in places like Sweden and also the UK that seem to have um, really had problems with the virus and really seen a huge number of people uh, get infected in community transmission. So now that we do have a vaccine or actually multiple vaccines and uh, two of which are currently being used here in Australia, there are these conversations about how will we reach herd immunity? Uh, there's obviously this is a question that epidemiologists tackle very, very often, and it's part of their, you know, bread and butter in their job. So um, now that it's kind of come to the forefront and also uh, is supposed to inform our new four-phase plan that the Prime Minister has announced on Friday, what are the I, what are the kind of key metrics that one needs to consider when looking at how a, a nation like Australia can achieve herd immunity with vaccination against a really infectious disease and virus like COVID-19? Well, first of all, let me remind your listeners that Australia has an amazing um, history of uh, uptake of vaccines, um, and so does the UK. So they're, they're two countries that are standouts. Um, the European countries are less um, um, likely to get vaccinated compared to the UK, and we, of course, are of, of not vaccine hesitant at all. Um, we're more there's a there's a, a personality uh, groups, those of us that rush out to do new things, those that will watch the, the early adopters and think it's it's safe and they do it, and then there are those that who are, have been inadvertently labelled as hesitant, but they're just the careful thinkers. They take quite some time. To, to weigh up all of the issues, but they make a decision and it's usually um, the correct decision when it comes to their health. So Australians have nearly reached 94% of um, vaccine um, uh, uptake for their zero to five-year-old kids. Now that is world, world class. Um, 15 year old boys and 15 year old girls um, being given uh, the vaccine for the human papillomavirus, that's around 80%. That's sensational. Um, yes, we'd like it higher, but that's pretty good. Um, and I can, you know, label off some others as well that are, you know, really fantastic. So yeah, with that in mind, when I say a number, don't get anxious <laughs> because we really do need a large number of and I've added 12-year-olds because in the US they've got an emergency use authorization to vaccinate the 12 
uh, to 16-year-olds, um, sorry, 18-year-olds. They've been doing 18 and over. And Israel's been doing 16 and over. So, you know, they've got this new um, authority after doing a safety um, study with a um, randomised control trial, one of the, you know, the best um, study designs. And they've been rolling it out. So I've looked at how many people we need in the 12 years and over age group. And to get a really good level of immunity based on what we have, AstraZeneca and Pfizer, we need at least um, 80% as the minimum or 95 as the preference. But when you put that in terms of total population, that's about 67% to about 80%. So that's doable. I mean, there are many countries that have this um, uh, level, this target as well. So, you know, Israel has a target of um, in the 60s, about 66%. Um, New Zealand wants about 80%. Um, and so th this number that I've um, calculated is is very doable. You know, the 67% is doable. The group that will um, be slower uh, to then achieve that, you know, extra you know, 13 percentage points um, will be sadly the uh, lower socioeconomic groups because they feel disengaged and angry. And the Institute, Melbourne Institute, have put out regular um, survey results, and they're really impressive, where they've identified satisfaction with the government, financial stress, um, and other issues. And it's the 18-year-olds to, you know, 40-year-olds that are feeling financially stressed, um, dissatisfied uh, with the government, and they'll be the group who will be probably slower to come on board because, rightly, they feel um, forgotten and unloved. Um, you know, they're struggling to make ends meet, uh, and in their mind, having a vaccine is a second to getting food on the table. So you've got to make it easy for this group and you can't shame them and you've got to be innovative. And I have to say, looking at the framework of the rollout, it's lacking in innovation. It's lacking in understanding that the group that we should be focusing on are the 20 to 39-year-olds. They're the ones that have more burden of infection The and... Uh, it, where we had the wild strain, the same with Delta. In the UK, they've actually found that the 18 to 24-year-olds, because they do their numbers slightly differently, they're driving this infection. They've got the highest prevalence rate um, wasted by, by you know, um, uh, population, the highest. Uh, and it's not unexpected because they're the ones that have got more social contacts, more work contacts, often because they often have multiple jobs. So why aren't we focusing on getting them on board, getting Pfizer out to them, using TikTok, Instagram, using local governments um, with the help of, you know, of course, and the imprimatur of the, of the federal government to open up a, a hall um, take a shop, you know, an empty shop, and have your local residents, particularly 
the, you know, favoring the 20 to 39-year-olds to walk in, get their Pfizer before they go to work or get it on the way home, have a day off so that you can then um, take it easy. Um, uh, often with Pfizer, people say they felt great with the first one and very tired with the second dose um, because they're not being given time off work get to some of the hubs to get to, um, well, first of all, they're, they're not being offered it at all. But when they are being offered it, they'll still find it trouble, troublesome to take time out from their work. Because, I mean, I can take time out from my work, but make it up. Um, mm. But if they have, if they have face, FaceTime work, such as um, hospitality um, or, or anything else, where they can't take that time off easily and make it up, then we have to make it easy for them. And I, I think that a lot of the decisions are made by very privileged people who've never struggled in life and don't understand what's happening out there. And they need to walk. Whenever I used to do research in the, my first pandemic, I would go and walk the streets and talk to people to find out what was going on because you can't assume to know what's going on even from great surveys like the, the Melbourne Institute. I mean, they're actually getting surveys from people answering this. But sometimes observing, we, uh, in, in hospital epidemiology, we call it corridor consultations. You observe, and you need to observe how young people uh, work, how they socialise, um, and work with that. Yeah, absolutely. And also, clearly, um, the 18 to 14-year-olds have been forgotten in an obvious sense that unless they are in the phase 1A and 1B, if they're in a vulnerable group or if they're a frontline worker, um, they wouldn't really qualify for a vaccine at this point in time. So they're technically still waiting unless they choose to take up the AstraZeneca um, which is still not the preferred vaccine for their age group, as Itagi have re-emphasised after the Prime Minister's comments. Um, given that, that herd immunity includes children uh, as well as adults, and given that children and vaccination have come up in recent times because of the concerning rise of children becoming infected in countries like the UK. Uh, but also even in Australia, we've seen uh, children get the virus at, um, at childcare, at schools. Uh, they're not immune from getting this virus. And uh, despite early messaging in the pandemic to say, oh, well, kids aren't affected. Clearly they are. And based on the really large data sets that the UK has, um, there are obviously also concerns around the child and adult populations having negative consequences should they get the virus. So, for example, uh, children can also get long COVID, and that's something that has been reported um, through the the United Kingdom's data gathering exercises uh, to suggest that there are enough children getting long COVID, just as adults are, to cause a concern about not just someone being hospitalised or dying of coronavirus, but also having longer term outcomes that would be negative in in the sense of their development, but also in the sense of how they can interact and engage with society. So is that a factor that 
Australians and also other countries around the world should be considering when looking at vaccination of children against COVID-19, that it's not just about death and severe disease. It's also about actually reducing the number of people getting infected at all, because as we know, it can cause uh, known long, medium to long-term effects, but also unknown effects. Absolutely. I mean, uh, young kids at the moment are driving for the the 5 to 12-year-olds and the 18 to 24-year-olds are driving Delta in the UK. Definitely. They are the two top groups. But you don't want to just target them with vaccines because they're driving this inadvertently. You want to give the vaccine to these groups so that they don't have a long-term sequelae, long-term adverse effects. And when we talk about long COVID, the definition is um, it's, a, it's a work in progress. But think about this of um, their symptoms go on for 12 or more weeks. Now, that's an awful long time. And I think it's a rather cynical exercise to say that eventually we should work towards not providing the public with um, daily numbers of cases, but just hospitalisation and death. Because it then just says, well, um, the struggling with infection is not important. It is important. We uh, have... um, reportable diseases, and one of them, for example, is whooping cough. Now, that is not just reported as a death or hospitalisation. It's reported in numbers so that you get a really good idea about whether or not you're getting outbreaks because um, people aren't getting uh, vaccinated or they need to be revaccinated as adults. And where would we be if we if the public didn't have those data? I'm, I'm a of a belief that we need to have full transparency of this disease, and that includes daily numbers. WHO have um, joined forces with Microsoft and another group to develop the first world um, health hub because they believe that everybody is a data scientist and we should be having uh, transparency. So getting back to long COVID, Uh, You don't know in children whether or not it will have disaster effects on major organs because that's um, where your ACE2 receptor sites uh, can be located. Um, And uh, we don't know whether or not um, they'll have, you know, fog brain because that's one of the uh, long uh, COVID um, symptoms, fog brain, where you can't think straight. Uh, it's often because they've got really unpredictable fatigue. Uh, and that's the sort of thing you don't want young kids to go into um, their teenagehood or their young adulthood. And you certainly don't want the 20 to 39-year-olds going into their 40s and 50s um, because, you know, that stage they should be really enjoying life. They've really got adult down well. Um, so they've done their adulting. And now they're moving into... Um, maybe being um, being parents um, and being very productive and enjoying life, um, you know, to the fullest. But if they go in uh, to middle age and children go into young adulthood uh, with any uh, disease um, that they should not have had, then really we're not taking this disease seriously and their human right to to safety from a pandemic.
Yes, absolutely. And there is a human right to health. Um, and it is concerning looking at a place like the UK, which clearly has, you know, in real time and shown us what it looks like when coronavirus and the Delta variant gets out of control. Um, and in the ONS data that is available on the UK government's website, and it's just been released, a new report as of July 1, um, showing that a great proportion of people getting COVID, so quite a significant number of people were still self-reporting long COVID symptoms. And when we were looking at children, um, they had estimated that 13,000 children aged between 2 and 11, 20,000 aged between 12 and 16, and 71,000 aged between 17 and 24 had long COVID of any duration, um, so over four weeks, and then at nearly all of those cohorts had symptoms for at least 12 weeks, which is the, the figure that you provided. So these are not small numbers. These are very substantial numbers. Um, they're obviously more substantial in an adult population if more adults have been infected historically with COVID. And also have been a number of adults in the UK who've had long COVID for over a year, um, which is the duration of or since they actually were infected. So I also wonder, given that the uh, Prime Minister and the Treasurer have spoken about this four-phase um, kind of plan for Australia and, and what it will look like in terms of Australia, what we measure as success, what we look to in terms of um, the kind of public health responses that are necessary in terms of the restrictions that we should bring in, put in place. There is a point uh, that the Prime Minister identified and that the Treasurer reinforced yesterday where they believe that really we'll only um, look to put in substantial measures like lockdowns or other public health um, impositions if we see a significant rise in hospitalisation and or deaths. Um, and that essentially, uh, the Prime Minister said, when COVID becomes the flu, we'll treat it like the flu. Now, this is something that obviously across the pandemic, we've heard COVID isn't the flu. Uh, it's very much doesn't behave like the flu. And as we've seen with the Delta variant, um, it has in some cases caused black fungus and other fungal infections in countries like India that have done very poorly. So it's probably not uh, a kind of comparison that would be genuine um, in terms of thinking about COVID-19. So I wonder when you hear this kind of messaging and also these plans about treating COVID like the flu, um, I'm sure a number of us would wonder, well, could it ever be like that? Is that a realistic scenario for us to be thinking about? And is that messaging helpful? Well, um, I can only assume that the authorities misspoke uh, uh, using uh, the, um, the term, you know, like the flu, given that it confuses people, as you've mentioned they very clearly explained to the public this was not the flu. And uh, we don't know how soon it will just become a, a small proportion of uh, people acquiring uh, COVID seasonally and whether it will ever become seasonal uh, rather than, you know, continuous. Um, and all you have to do is ask people, how was the flu for you? And a lot of people say, who've had laboratory um, confirmed influenza, that they had, um, you know, a week in bed with shocking um, 
uh, temperatures, fever, and and just can't remember a whole week because they were in and out of sleep. Um, and of course, if you know, we we get we get babies and we get um, elderly adults dying every year in Australia from the flu um, because they're they're either not being vaccinated um, or because um, the elderly were vaccinated, but they just didn't elicit a protective response. And in public health, um, there's, there's, you shouldn't, and particularly outbreak management, you shouldn't be developing um, a level, a cut point where you say, oh, well, near enough is good enough and we're going to accept this level of death. Um, that's called an, an endemic level. And um, it's very cynical to have an endemic level of infection and potentially an endemic level of death that we accept. And I think that we need to work harder at ensuring that we don't have to accept this uh, before uh, the inevitable might happen if we don't start vaccinating the whole world. And then, of course, we will have continuing circulating virus. And I don't know if this virus will start playing nice, where instead of becoming more severe, it will then become less severe and learn to live with its host uh, more like a cold. Um, and certainly, you don't want to get the flu. And for any of your listeners, if you haven't started having your flu injection, um, you will once you've suffered uh, the flu once. It's and it's and it's the real flu. It's not para influenza, which is you know like like an influenza illness, but but usually much more milder. And um, you, you you just wouldn't put up with that if you knew that there was a vaccine that could stop you from not going to work for seven to ten days and feeling like you know death warmed up. Um, so I I don't think it's the right time to start telling people that eventually we're just going to be looking at hospitalizations and deaths. I think the messaging basically incorrectly, I think, says uh, we're going to have to get out of this sooner than later because this is hurting the economy and we're going to have to put up with some of this. Now, that was the thinking at the beginning of the pandemic by you know people like um, Boris Johnson and uh, the chief epidemiologist in Sweden, where they were thinking that herd immunity uh, would work. Now, with Delta, um, WHO and the UK uh, recent studies have said very, very plainly that you can uh, potentially uh, get a reinfection of COVID with Delta, that your neutralising antibodies uh, wane very fast, um, in, in a matter of um, months and in some people earlier, and therefore you're at more risk of getting another COVID. Now, it might be milder, but it might not. Uh, do you really want to risk that? So I think we really need to push the idea that for every vaccine that we give out in Australia, that we donate to our neighbours, particularly Indonesia, is one of our biggest um, you know, populated neighbour uh, in the region, and uh, try really hard. Every country needs to, to do that with one of their nearest neighbours um, who's highly populated and struggling to get the vaccine out there so that it does become seasonal and so that um, it has less 
opportunity to develop um, a mutation because if most of us are vaccinated, then it has very few people to use as a playground to learn how to be uh, more uh, transmissible and potentially more, uh, more dangerous. Mm. And we have seen doctors in Indonesia trying to manage their outbreak um, who have been vaccinated get the Delta variant. And um, obviously vaccines are effective and we've really spoken about this together on the show many times before. So um, we we don't dispute that, but it is a reality that um, there are increasing reported instances where people who have had, for example, um, two doses of Pfizer, Andrew Marr, for example, a BBC presenter, went to the G7 summit and actually got uh, COVID-19 from that summit after being fully vaccinated. So there is a rationale um, and a reminder that just because we have uh, vaccination doesn't mean that we should stop you know, wearing masks, um, distancing, mm. taking precautions, you know, doing a, an online meeting instead of exposing hospitality workers who are unvaccinated to a population of leaders who were vaccinated. Uh, these kind of things, you know, seem to be a consideration that perhaps we're not really seeing at the moment. And I, I know that I've seen um, even the European Council had a meeting and um, the the head of Luxembourg now has COVID-19 and has been hospitalised um, from getting COVID from that meeting. So there appears to be a, a kind of increasing complacency on a world scale and no doubt summer doesn't help over in Europe at the moment. Um, you know, we're seeing that increasing complacency and, and the UK where you mentioned there Boris Johnson with that messaging, unfortunately, he even has suggested that, you know, the UK will remove their restrictions um, earlier than the, the moment where the whole of the UK will have an opportunity to be fully vaccinated. So there is, uh, I guess, increasing concern looking around that perhaps um, we're going to see Delta continue to run out of control and not get under control like we're trying to, at least here in Australia. Um, Mary Louise, just finally in our conversation, it's something that has come up um, and I have seen certainly in conversations overseas around this booster dose, the idea that uh, we have two doses of a vaccine. Um, some people in Australia, maybe eight to nine percent of us have been lucky enough to be fully vaccinated already. Um, there is a, a varying level of antibody response, depending on if you are immunocompromised, if you've been taking steroids or immunosuppressants. We've seen some early studies come out that have limited or, or reduced the efficacy of the vaccines. Um, if you're elderly, as you said, you may not have as good a, an immune response. So there are now discussions about uh, having a booster dose available for some of those small and limited cohorts of people who may not have had an effective response and who may have been vaccinated right at the beginning of a rollout um, that may have started at the end of last year in the UK or the US. I wonder when we're thinking about and planning ahead, at least in Australia, because obviously uh, we need to get more people fully vaccinated before we think of a third dose, but what are some of the things we should be thinking about and planning for ahead of time in terms of when a booster dose may be be necessary for some of the groups who may not have an adequate immune response? Wow. Well, um, that, that question has um, equity involved and uh, safety involved. So um, from the equitable point of view, 
there have been um, doctors in the and, and scientists in the UK suggesting that uh, rolling out boosters uh, shouldn't be done until uh, people in the rest of their um, region have been vaccinated uh, to at least uh, one dose. And so they're basically saying that it's nationalism uh, to only protect um, the UK rather than protecting uh, countries where, for example, in Africa, where they've got a long uh, history. Uh, and, and, you know, in Africa, on in general, there's less than 2% of people have received two doses and less than uh, 2% of people receiving one dose. Uh, and so uh, this particular group of scientists are c concerned about sort of vaccine nationalism. But then from a different perspective, um, we do know that neutralising antibodies uh, do wane, and they wane at a different level depending possibly on your um, the vaccine efficacy of you know, which vaccine you've had your two doses from. Uh, and um, it certainly looks like, um, eight, you know, eight months with a with a high level of vaccine efficacy to start with is a time when uh, it might have dropped um, by at least three, 30 percentage points. But, you know, for an average vaccine around, let's say, 70 to 80 percent being um, effective, that can drop by, you know, oh, gosh, uh, 40 uh, 30 to 40 percentage points uh, in eight months. So I think that the English starting to roll out that, wanting to plan to roll out that that third dose is because they're seeing that phase one of their rollout to the elderly uh, are starting to potentially lose their neutralising um, response uh, to, to Delta and, and, and other strains. Um, so, yes, I think we need to be prepared that we'll need to have this on a kind of a seasonal basis um, or even maybe sooner than a seasonal basis. But um, I take the point of is it best to do that in Australia or is it better to, um, to help the rest of the world get to at least, you know, 70% um, herd immunity globally? Uh, that, that's the difficult question that I think needs to be explored. Um, I mean, I, I'm not a great lover of modelling per se because it often can't take into account behaviour and culture. But on this particular instance, uh, that might be incredibly helpful to look at what could be the effectiveness of waiting for the world to get to herd immunity versus rolling out the third uh, dose to um, privileged countries such as ours and the US and, um, and, and other countries. Mind you, you know, we, we've done very well as global citizens to stop the spread, but there are countries that haven't had restrictions, have gone on holidays, have only just... Uh, put in place quarantine on, you know, return uh, holiday makers. And so they haven't used their global citizenship well enough to keep the spread down, of, um, you know, to their neighbouring countries. So perhaps the scientists in the UK have something going where they're talking about, 
let's look at a global um, rollout first before we start thinking about um, vaccinating, uh, you know, for that third round. Uh, but then again, you know, uh, if we were going to be doing that, I'd be going for we get where we get most effect, and that is the children and the young adults. Mm. That's where I'd be, if if at all, doing the third dose. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly Australia needs to have enough vaccine and to do that quickly. And I think you've made a really great point throughout this pandemic, Mary Louise, that you know these are the people with a number of contacts that have a number of exposure sites that go to work, are often in insecure work, are putting their lives on the line essentially by going um, to work in the supermarket, for example, being exposed to the general public and picking up the virus um, and, and being most at risk. And another example I just wanted to close out on was um, we have seen the numbers come through this morning from New South Wales and there's been another confirmed case of COVID-19 in an aged care worker at the Summit Care um, aged care facility um, and the worker had worked throughout their infectious period. So there are um, these frontline workers, as you say, that are lower paid, that are putting their um, health at risk by going out to do this essential work that absolutely should have been first priority and still should be, um, and also those younger people who are out and about who we don't want getting long COVID and then having their entire life trajectory altered because of this um, disease. So uh, thank you for putting this into perspective for us, I think, and also for explaining the science behind decisions and also what we need to be thinking about when we're hearing some contradictory and perhaps ill-informed messaging from the government around comparisons of COVID with the flu. So I really want to thank you again for taking the time today and also to wish you good luck in New South Wales and to thank those in New South Wales for doing the right thing and for staying at home and uh, and not going out and uh, doing their retail shopping in places beyond supermarkets. Yes, exactly. And, and look, a call out to all of the essential workers, and they're not just health. Mm. They're people that drive the trucks, that, you know, put food on the shelves for us. And they're often very young and um, and really we need them to be safe. So uh, thank you for allowing me to talk to your listeners and stay well. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. It's my real pleasure and delight to welcome onto the program Dr. Kevin Rowe, who is a senior curator of mammals at Museums Victoria. And uh, I'm sure many listening who love mammals and native mammals in particular might be really intrigued by the idea of being a senior curator of mammals at uh, Museums Victoria. So we'll get to hear about Kevin's fascinating work with colleagues in just a moment. And we are going to focus our attention on native rodents, uh, in particular the Gould's mouse, which has now been uh, I guess, rediscovered in a sense that we now realise it is not extinct. It was thought to be extinct and there has been an entire process, uh, scientific discovery process that has gone on to uncover this situation and find out that it is in fact surviving 
on Burnie Island in Western Australia. So I welcome Dr. Kevin Rowe now. Hi there, Kevin, and thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Um, now, I know that you are very passionate about native rodents, and I mean, most of the, the articles that are about you or about your passion for them. So it's really wonderful to see that they have such a strong advocate in the community and in the scientific community. And it is um, obviously a concern to many people listening who are passionate about conservation and the environment that Australia really has uh, the world's worst track record for wiping out mammals. And um, since colonisation, there had been 34 species declared extinct since that uh, very fateful moment. Um, un wonderfully, at least, that 34 number will now be dropped back to 33 because of this scientific research that has been done by yourself and colleagues. Um, but before we get to that one specific example and the other great rodents that you focus on, I would really like to talk about the significance of native mammals and, in particular, of native rodents uh, in Australia and why they are so special, so unique, and the fact that they are certainly not superfluous uh, or even pests, as someone might um, inappropriately assume, that they are actually really critical parts of our our ecosystems. So could you share with us, you know, at that really broad level and entry level, the significance of native rodents to Australia? Uh, of course, and you're, you're correct, as you say, um, Australia has the worst track record for mammalian extinctions um, in the historical record with 34 species extinct. Um, and almost half of those are native rodents, uh, about 40 species. Um, 14 species declared extinct, um, at least until this study, we may get that down to 13. Um, and native, uh, the mammals of Australia are just globally significant and really amazing. Of course, the marsupials and monotremes, koalas and kangaroos and platypus are so important to um, the unique mammalian assemblage and mammalian communities that are in Australia. Um, but they also have this amazing um, diversity of um, native rodents. And theirs is an amazing story of uh, arrival and colonization uh, from Asia. So while um, the monotremes and marsupials traveled on Australia as it moved north from Antarctica over the last 80 to 100 million years, uh, rodents uh, weren't on that landmass and they arrived um, from Asia passing through um, what is now uh, Indonesia. And they did that not once but twice uh, coming from uh, Asia and arriving in New Guinea. And so the, uh, the rodents of Australia are really tightly linked to the rodents of New Guinea. Their origins are from New Guinea. Uh, and the first rodents arrived around six to eight million years ago in New Guinea. Um, and then they kicked around in New Guinea, forming new species, um, and then finally arrived in Australia for the first time uh, about four and a half to five million years ago. Um, and those first Australian rodents are really the subject of this study attempting to get a comprehensive understanding of their uh, relationships, their evolution, um, including species, including the as many of the 14 species of extinct rodents that we had available in collections. Mm. And in terms of their 
the way that they are in the environment and the way that they interact with other species in their direct vicinity, um, what what is the kind of the role of, of rodents? And obviously they are low-lying. They would be ground-level, presumably mammals, that um, perhaps burrow quite a lot. Um, and I'm wondering what their role is and what they do in Australia, given that they have been here for so long, for such a substantial time, presumably them going missing and becoming extinct would be a bad thing. Yeah, so there's about 70 road species uh, native to Australia, but if you add the species in New Guinea and adjacent islands, uh, it gets to about 180 species. And they live in every uh, ecosystem, um, including deserts, uh, forests. Uh, there are species that are amphibious, so we know the Rakali or Hydromys, the water rat in Australia. You can see them down at St. Kilda Pier. Um, they have other um, amphibious relatives in New Guinea as well. Uh, and there are um, completely wholly arboreal species like um, uh, prehensile tailed mice. We have one species in Queensland that lives only in the canopy of the rainforest. And actually, we didn't even realize it was in Australia. It was known from New Guinea until about the 1990s when uh, people started finally finding them uh, because they just don't come down to the ground and go in our traps. So you have to imagine that every um, you know square meter of Australia has um, has or had native rodents um, living in them, doing all kinds of um, ecosystem functions from uh, burrowing and, and turning over soil, eating seeds and uh, moving seeds around. Uh, some of them actually eat other animals. Uh, the water rat, um, Rakali, eats um, invertebrates and, and mollusks in the water. Uh, there are moss mice in New Guinea that feed on uh, earthworms and other invertebrates. Uh, and so it's a really um, diverse assemblage of ecosystem functions that uh, native rodents of Australia, uh, New Guinea, the Australian continent are providing, and they play an essential role in almost every ecosystem. Mm. And in terms of uh, their different habitats, like it's fascinating and really cool that they uh, can live up in high up in canopies in trees. Um, and also, you know, clearly a concern that perhaps because some of them are, are ground lying um, that things like national disasters like a bushfire um, would potentially disproportionately affect mammals that um, can't escape a, a really fast moving fire. I wonder if you could share with us what some of the pressures are, the human related pressures, but also the natural pressures on uh, native rodents in Australia that have led to some of the extinctions that we have seen uh, in the last few decades. Um, yeah, so Australia is a really tough place to live. It's known for having low primary productivity, low nitrogen in the soils. Many of our native plants are like, highly adapted uh, to that um, lifestyle. Like you use a different soil when you're going to plant grevilleas or something if you're a gardener uh, because they don't like nitrogen-rich soils. Uh, and rodents, which had come from tropical rainforests of Asia and then New Guinea and then to Australia, had to suddenly, after millions of years, uh, adapt to this completely novel environment full of uh, deserts and monsoonal tropics and, and uh, droughts and, and infrequent rainfall and all the things that make Australia difficult to live in uh, uh, for, for animals in the wild. Uh, and they did that successfully, um, but many of them were probably living um, at the edge of uh, perturbance, further perturbance. And the arrival of Europeans uh, just 
had massive effects across the landscape, obviously, which um, huge land conversion is just a major effect for almost all species uh, in Australia that are threatened. Uh, but then also the introduction of feral uh, predators, particularly the house cat and the red fox, um, are huge impacts on a species. Uh, and then in this context of um, altered landscapes and feral predators, uh, potentially introduced diseases and other things, uh, there's the bushfires and other uh, massive uh, events that can happen in Australia just are another factor that can really push species and their habitats over the edge. Um, and it's rodents are no um, exception to that. Yeah. And I know that you, in your role, focus on a whole range of different species and um, in the past have, have done research on the broad-toothed rat, uh, which lives in high-altitude areas and uh, have a really interesting job and um, I think love grass, I believe, and uh, eat a lot of grass. Um, what are some of the the key species that in your job at Museums Victoria that you've focused your attention to and and what in particular does a senior curator of mammals look at when they're looking at certain species of native rodents? So I try to look at rodents from um, a holistic perspective. It's one of the advantages of being a curator of mammals or a curator in in general, um, is that we get to take a system and try to understand it from all kinds of different perspectives. So a lot of my work is focused on resolving the evolution and the origin of rodents in Australia. Um, that was some of my early work as a postdoc was working out uh, how many times they arrived in New Guinea. As I said, they did it twice um, um, over the last one to eight million years. Uh, and then also uh, in Victoria, I'm, I work for the state government and I uh, try to address needs um, on the landscape, particularly related to threatened species. So as you mentioned, uh, the broad-tooth rat or the tuarana, uh, Mastocomys fuscus, um, is a threatened species uh, in on mainland Australia. It's known from New South Wales, Victoria, and Tasmania. Uh, the mainland populations are uh, listed as threatened, and um, in part because they like cool, wet environments that support the grass they eat. And it's a really interesting evolutionary story. You have uh, a species, Mastocomys, descended from a group of rodents that came into Australia, first colonizing its monsoon tropics and deserts, uh, and then adapting to live in grasses, uh, a grassland, cool, wet grasslands of southeastern Australia. Um, and those, the original um, arrival in Australia came from, as I mentioned, tropical rainforest species uh, over millions of years. Uh, and then millions of years before that, they came from Southeast Asia, uh, from uh, Asia and Europe. And so the broad-tooth rat is much like species we know from uh, Arctic regions from Europe, North America, uh, called voles, lemmings, uh, species that live on grasses. And I like to and which are diverged from native Australian rodents and other Australian rodents about 25 million years ago. So over 25 million years since they diverged, uh, the lineages leading to Mastocomys passed through um, Asia, living in tropical rainforest, crossed open ocean channels of uh, the Indonesian archipelago, um, some of the greatest um, biodiversity barriers on Earth, um, crossing through the islands like Sulawesi uh, before millions of years later, arriving in the rainforest of New Guinea, 
adapting to life in the rainforests of New Guinea, then finally arriving in Australia, adapting to life in the deserts and the monsoon tropics before finally uh, becoming a vole-like creature in the grasses of southeastern Australia, uh, maybe a million to two million years ago. Mm. Well, it sounds like there's some really interesting evolutionary questions that you get to examine and answer, and also taxonomy as being another really critical component of um, the role of a museum. And I know that, you know, obviously taxonomy was crucial in this particular question that you had and this study that you did with colleagues about, excuse me, the Gould's mouse. So uh, first of all, um, I wonder what you could tell us about what a taxonomical resurrection is, because it sounds like a, a really great way to describe what happened, and also um, just how critical a museum's collection, or in this case, more than one museum's collections of specimens were in this resurrection. Uh, of course. Uh, so a taxonomic resurrection, and in this case, it's um, where we thought we had two species based on uh, the taxonomy, the naming of species, we realize after further examination that those are really members of the same species, organisms that would have been connected by gene flow and reproduction to share an evolutionary future. Um, and this project is part of a really large national initiative to sequence uh, at the genome scale uh, every living and recently living, that is the historically extinct species of uh, terrestrial Australian mammal. So there's a group that's doing all the marsupial species, uh, the monotremes, there's not a large number to do. Uh, and then our group was working on all the, uh, the rodent species and that's Australia and New Guinea. So about 180 species. Uh, and that involves the, to get every species um, on earth, even for mammals, a really well-known group, you're really dealing with a lot of historical specimens. And many species are known from one to a few specimens in any, any collection. Uh, and so that required having technologies that allowed us to access um, large amounts of genetic material, genome scale data from historical um, and often really um, old uh, specimens in museums. And in this study, uh, we sequenced um, eight species of extinct rodents using um, material in, in museum collections uh, dating back almost 180 years, some of them, uh, many of them from the 19th century and early 20th century. And we were able to extract from just, and these specimens were mostly um, just dried skin, skins that had been collected um, and prepared as taxidermy specimens and then stored uh, in uh, museum collections uh, dry uh, and in cool environments uh, for more than 100 years, more than 160 years. And then we were able to take a small amount of um, skin, usually from the foot, maybe one to two millimeters. Uh, and from that, we can sequence the entire genome of the specimen. Yeah, it was really, really interesting to read about the fact that these old, old specimens that, you know, go back into our colonial history and, um, you know, seeing English people, for example, take some of these specimens and, and take them back to England, um, that these specimens could provide a robust DNA sample that could be sequenced and could provide that that level of certainty around um, the existing species that are still here and, and match up that information. Is, it, is there ever a challenge when working with older specimens that you may not be able to get enough information? 
Um, definitely. All, all these specimens are challenging and it required some um, really novel uh, technologies. The same sort of methods that were used to sequence um, uh, Neanderthals and other um, extinct human relatives uh, we used in this, um, in this study. And there were some um, species that uh, only had one specimen, and it wasn't didn't provide adequate DNA, depending on how it was preserved. So there's a species in here, Pseudomys glaucus, um, the I forget its common name, the gray blue mouse or something it's called. Uh, and there's only really one specimen in the in the Natural History Museum in London, uh, and that specimen had um, sat in alcohol and ethanol. Um, and one of the problems with ethanol is that Ethanol likes to evaporate, and it leaves behind water, and water um, just dissociates DNA. It just breaks DNA down into free nucleotides uh, and through a process called hydrolysis. And so that specimen, we tried extensively to get DNA out of that and, and, and failed. So that's one of uh, nine species of extinct, one of the nine species we attempted, uh, but uh, eight of the nine worked, and that one didn't. Mm. And in this study, um, it was, you know, really great to hear that there is uh, a mouse that currently is around still, you know, that hasn't been um, extinct as was thought uh, based on its genetic code, its um, genomic sequence. And it does have a really wonderful Indigenous name, um, Jungari, which um, is from, and I apologise if I pronounce this incorrectly, from the Pintupi and Luritja languages. Um, and it's really great to see in, you know, science that we are, combining often uh, cultural First Nations people's knowledge of species with Western science and making sure that, um, I guess, these areas are not totally siloed. So I wonder if you could um, talk about the, the Gould's mouse that um, this particular study found and its features and also um, the kind of cultural understandings we have of this mouse as well. Um, sure. So Gould's mouse, uh, known by the scientific name Pseudomys Gouldi, uh, was described in 1839. It was first collected on the Darwin expedition uh, to on the voyage of the HMS Beagle um, in New South Wales. It was collected in 1837, and those specimens went to the Natural History Museum in London. It wasn't seen again until 1857, uh, when uh, Museum Victoria's first curator of zoology, Wilhelm Blandowski, uh, led this famous expedition to the confluence of the Murray and Darling Rivers uh, in the northwest corner of Victoria and collected, uh, his team collected the second specimen, and which would prove to be the last specimen. So we had a specimen from 1837 collected uh, by the Darwin expedition and a specimen from 1857 collected by the Blandowski expedition um, and preserved in Museums Victoria's collection. Uh, and so those are the Last two, uh, last the only specimens we had available for the species. Uh, the species was declared extinct uh, by the IUCN in the 1990s and by Australia in 2000. But the last specimen ever collected or ever seen was in 1857, uh, and we assumed it was uh, a distinct species. And in this study, by sequencing. Um, Gouldy, other extinct rodents, and their 42 living relatives. So the key is that we had the sampling of all the, of all the living relatives and could put this in that systematic framework. Um, we realized that um, Gouldy, the specimens of Gouldy, were genetically indistinguishable from a living species, Pseudomys fieldi, 
uh, from Shark Bay from that survived on a single island, Bernier Island, a 42-square-kilometer island. Um, and um, it's known by the common name Jungari, which, is, as you mentioned, from the Pintupi Luricha people um, who are from the western, western desert regions. Uh, so they're not actually from Shark Bay. Uh, and that's because uh, field eye was known to be uh, on the mainland as far as Owl Springs and it's actually not the first time that uh, the species uh, range has been changed. We used to recognize the mouse on Shark Bay as Pseudomys preconis, but in 1998, morphologists realized that the specimens from the central desert all the way to Owl Springs, uh, the Owl Springs mouse, were, the, were uh, morphologically indistinguishable and therefore best recognized as a single species. Um, and now, adding Gould eye shows us that, that this species that now survives on a single island was once continentally distributed from the coast of WA all the way to the uh, dividing ranges in New South Wales. And so when we think of the extinction of these species, we often think of them as being rare um, and uncommon, but this was probably a very abundant and widespread species throughout um, across the Australian continent. And, mm. It's really sad to hear that, you know, that abundance is no longer and that um, where thankfully we have predator-free islands that these species at least have one final sanctuary. But obviously that can mean um, that their life and their situation could be precarious. Um, so I wonder when we're looking at where it currently resides and um, where these species have now, I guess, be, been confined to, are we as a nation doing all we can to protect those species that are under threat still and that have really um, had their populations diminished substantially? Well, I don't, I don't think we're ever doing all we can. Um, and Australia is a challenging place. It's where, you know, it's often referred to as a rich country. It's certainly a rich, con rich country per capita, uh, but it's not a very populated country per hectare, not necessarily rich per hectare, and not necessarily rich given all the threatened species. Um, the vast majority of native rodents are threatened with extinction um, and require management. Uh, many of them are really cryptic and hard to ever find or learn much about them. So we, um, you know, Gould eye disappeared before we saw more than a handful of specimens from two from two localities, uh, and we that's the case for many of the species uh, that we we deal with today. Um, you mentioned the broad tooth rat, um, and one of the reasons the mastocomies. The one of the reasons that we really got interested in them was trying to understand. Um, where they are in the landscape. You can't just um, call, call that up and realize that we hadn't looked uh, in the state of Victoria really very well since the 1990s. Uh, and that species was projected to decline with climate change. Uh, so we, that's one of the reasons we go out um, and try to find these animals, build, build records of where they are, um, how many are there, and try to improve um, our ability to respond. And mm -hmm. with broadtooth rats, we went out across Victoria and visited uh, every site where we had a record of them prior to 1990. Uh, and then we had found that they had disappeared from more than half of the sites in Victoria, and that that was consistent with the expectations of climate change, that they were more likely to disappear at lower elevation and warmer temperature sites than at high elevation and cool temperature sites.
Mm. Well, and this is something that is a really big concern in Australia and that we have seen some negative press about uh, globally is that, you know, Australia has a big role to play in climate change and mitigating it like all other nations around the world. Um, But we also do have an extinction crisis and we've lost almost 100 species overall to extinction since 1788 that we've actually identified and named and and, you know, made that classification for. So with that in mind and, and also with your job in mind, your broader role as senior curator of mammals overall, um, what does the picture look like for mammals here, native mammals in Australia, um, and, and I guess your role moving forward? And is conservation um, one of the most important kind of things that you have in mind at Museums Victoria and are there other things that you, you know, hope to get at the forefront of the public's mind when we're thinking about our native mammals? Well, one of the, the positive signs for native mammals, native rodents in particular, is that um, most of the extinctions we think probably happened early in the 20th century. And so for rodents, we recent recently had the um, Bramble K. Melamese from uh, islands in the Torres Strait uh, declared extinct uh, just a couple of years ago. Um, but other than that, uh, the other species uh, declined probably at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, um, even if they were declared extinct much later. So something something has worked to keep more extinctions from happening after that first sort of just conversion of the landscape uh, and you know, protected lands. Uh, all we work closely with um, state and uh, federal land management agencies because the protected lands, the national parks that we have, are critical to preserving uh, these species. Most of the native rodents live only in uh, in national parks or in protected reserves. So we have to we have to retain those and connect connect those. So there is um, a good sign that species are still here. Uh, for me, I arrived right after the millennial drought broke as a new curator in 2011. Uh, and it's been a great time for detecting species uh, of, of really rare and, and threatened species, an endangered species of rodent that we work on, for instance, uh, the smoky mouse, the conum, uh, in, it's just known almost wholly from Victoria, just gets across the border in New South Wales, was uh, seen in the ACT uh, in the 80s, but then never seen again. Mm-hmm. Um, after the during the millennial drought, in the second latter half of the millennial drought, they were undetectable in their strongholds uh, in Victoria. And then, when the um, after the millennial drought broke, they they came back and uh, were detectable. We were in the Grampians National Park in 2012 when I my first surveys for them, and we saw 28 individuals uh, in a matter of three days and one line. That was more individuals than we'd seen since the 1970s. So wow. that was a really positive sign for us. Um, they're here. And then we've just, we've just tried to stay and keep track of them before the next drought comes, because mm. often what we're working with is really sparse data um, and sparse specimens to make inferences about whether species are declining, um, whether they need special uh, um, actions to help preserve them. Yeah. We'll have to leave it there, um, Kevin, because we've just run out of time. But I really want to say a big thank you to you for explaining how wonderful our native rodents and mammals are. I know we could cover it for much longer. Um, And I hope people can check out the paper and the research that's just been done um, and find out about the Gould's Mouse in more detail if they're interested. And a big thank you to you for your time today.
A pleasure. Thank you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.